0: now joined by J.G. Michael from uh, Parallax View. Uh, Good podcast, film podcast a lot of times. um, So we kind of went through the plot of the movie, um, but I I wanted to replay this for you. We kind of watched it at the beginning, but um, there's the, so there's a Ronald Reagan, I said it to you, there's a Ronald Reagan um, very, very strange pseudo-documentary where Reagan is explaining how brainwashing occurred. And this is not like a, a supposed to be like a fictional movie. It's supposed to be
1: that, like. Not, yeah. not to interrupt you, but that's, that's kind of funny that he's talking about, you know, brainwashing and stuff, because I don't know. Re- Reagan's kind of like the real Manchurian candidate of Hollywood because he was yeah, Mr. Well, he got involved in like, uh, the unions, but he we, was bought we just, paid for by the corporate industries.
2: You know, yeah, We were just talking about that an hour ago and mm-hmm. being part of GE.
1: Mm-hmm. And,
2: uh, Living in a house, the heat, like the the uh, the videotape of the house <laughs> that he he lived in.
0: Yeah, right. So this is this is uh we'll rewatch this It's like five minutes, but it's just this fucking really really strange. Um, yeah, this is Korean this fake Korean war documentary.
3: Being captured by an enemy is a shocking experience for any soldier in any war. In Korea, this shock was made sharper because no one knew quite what to expect, except. ...possibly the worst. Starvation and brutality, maybe. Or torture, even. Oriental torture, such as burning bamboo splinters... ...under the fingernails. Then there'd been talk of brainwashing. Wasn't brainwashing a big thing with the Chinese? Maybe they even used narcotics.
4: Gentlemen, we welcome you... ...to the ranks of the People's Democracy. We are happy to have liberated you from the Wall Street warmongers who sent you here for their profit. We have nothing against you, and we want to offer you a fair proposition. All we ask is cooperation and fair play. For you, this war is over, so don't fight us. Sit back, be like others, relax, make yourselves comfortable like the other men are doing. You have nothing to fear. We want to be your friends. There are no slave camps here, no road gangs. You will not be put to work. We will give you free, the best food and shelter and clothing we possibly can. Now, it won't be good by your standards. We are a poor country, but it will be the best thing we've got, and you won't have to work for it. Finally, we will give you the thing we know you really want most, a chance to learn the truth. When the war mongers have made enough money, when they let this senseless slaughter end, we just want you to go home to your own good homes and find families and simply tell them the truth, as you yourselves decide the truth to be.
3: Well, you've got to admit, this beats burning bamboo splinters under your fingernails. It was almost as irresistible as the deals you hear over the radio. Get it now. Don't deny yourself a thing. Sit back. No need to work. Get yours. Everybody else is getting theirs. Yes, this was pretty much the way in which our men were greeted by the Chinese and how their captivity began. In other wars, Americans have always organized together fairly soon after capture. They set up internal controls, escape committees, a military justice system, and groups to care for the sick and wounded. But in Korea, even though many months went by, effective internal organizations didn't develop. Yet during this period, there was no special indoctrination, no magical methods for the control of Americans, nothing except the usual hardships and deprivations of prison camp. And from Dr. Mayer's own standpoint, as a physician and psychiatrist, it was this period which disturbed him the most because it was during this period when most of the men who died, died.
0: I should say it's done from the vantage point of a, a, a fictional study where this doctor is supposedly, aka like a like a character actor in the lab coat, is uh, talking to all these soldiers that were put in a, a prison camp and asking like, oh, why didn't you guys escape? Or why didn't you guys, you know, why did you guys just let this happen? So it's like, you know, and, and it's supposed to be like a... Um, it's supposed to really be a documentary, like you know what I mean, like their version of like a yeah. pseudo documentary.
1: I, I I was gonna say it's it's like hard for me to pay attention because every time I hear Ronald Reagan's voice I wanna puke.
2: Well <laughs>
1: don't we all?
0: Yeah.
3: Give up itis, they called it. When the weakest simply turned their faces to the wall, covered their heads, and within forty eight hours were dead. If only the boy's family and school and church had helped him grasp and develop the idea of personal responsibility and obligation, had weaned him away from the belief that individual effort was painful and useless. If only he had been taught that he has the ability, even alone, to meet and solve serious problems, then this cold, terrible reality would not have destroyed him. But it was after the first few months that we began to see the communist Chinese indoctrination. The application by the Chinese of a finely developed educational program, one that occupied every day, all day, seven days a week for the great majority of prisoners. It was a classical anti-capitalist, anti-American diatribe of the sort the communists have been publishing for years. Afterward, there were discussions in which every prisoner was forced to participate, but not by the Chinese, oh no. Come on, soldier, get with it. Sum up this lecture for our instructor so we can get some chow. Then there were the public confessions, where each prisoner was required to stand up and perform an exercise of public self-criticism, confessing to one and all his past sins against society.
4: Oh, we had several slaves, about 2,000 per acre. Beyond that, we, we owned most of the land, We drove Cadillacs all over and there was a yacht for everybody. One for me, one for my daddy. And money was nothing to us.
3: Not because they believed what they heard or what they said. Nothing of the kind. They simply went along. They did what others expected them to do. Even though they knew it was wrong. Why? There were some things I wasn't too proud of. I haven't mentioned before. Like the time I took your
4: food rations when you were sick, on the time when I took medicine from you, and I also informed on some guys who were breaking out of compound 14.
3: Well, everyone else was doing it. And to be popular, you went along too. If you didn't, well, a guy could become mighty unpopular.
4: All right, gentlemen.
3: Dismissed. You had a free choice, of course. You could enjoy either popularity or respect. Not very many chose
0: respect, only a few. So, yeah, the, the first time we watched it, I was saying that uh, it reminded me of those, like, Nancy Reagans later, like, just say no. You know. Yeah, yeah right. like, uh, <laughs> it's like, the peer pressure got to them. So they didn't need to be brainwashed. But, I mean, you know, the whole thing is, uh, is just like a... Uh,
1: maybe for, uh, I, I was gonna say real quick maybe ronald reagan got mk ultra that's why he couldn't remember about <laughs> iran contra maybe that's why he couldn't <laughs> remember
2: anything i don't remember i don't remember anything <laughs> i do not recall i do not recall anything about Iran Contra. about shredding well, of. Well, william, william
0: casey race. is kind of even among um even among the intelligence community is kind of seen as like the worst uh cia director right like Least the the, one of the least liked CIA directors.
1: I think he was even Um, known as like Wild Bill, right?
0: No, that's uh that's Bill Donovan.
1: Yeah, Bill Donovan. Yeah.
0: Yeah, but um, William Casey is the is the Iran Contra guy, the guy that was uh, Mm -hmm. Reagan's like like Mm -hmm. right hand man, and he put in charge at one point of the of the CIA, despite him not really having CIA training experience. Yeah, which I mean, maybe I mean it's probably better that people don't have experience but then because there's no there's no good way to put someone in as a cia director like you know what i mean like because there's a bunch of them that were like career officers that obviously knew where every single body was buried that they put yeah. in charge and those people are like already kind of in control of everything um but then on top of that you know like if you put in someone who's never been in the cia and they're just instantly like all right let's continue these ops like <laughs> <laughs> there's no like just i mean obviously <laughs> abolish the cia but it's yeah so funny that like you know, I can't really guess which one is the fucking worst thing. Like a lot of times they would disappoint like politicians that they liked. Like when uh Bush Senior got put in charge of the CIA for like a year. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. But well, he,
2: uh I was gonna say real quickly, he he relied on a resume uh, of uh, federal offices uh, to seek the presidency in eighty and then in eighty eight. So
1: yeah, I was gonna he Just was a,
2: a, he was definitely a
0: careerist.
1: Yeah, no, 100%. Just a little anecdote. Uh, there was a an interview that I haven't published yet. I recorded it probably late last year, but there's a lot of audio issues with it. But it was with um, Gary Sick, who worked with uh, Carter's administration um, when it came to Iran. And, you know, Sick is probably most known today for having written the book, The October Surprise. And there's like... There's debate over the October surprise, and even Gary will admit that, you know, the case is ultimately very circumstantial, but uh, he talked to Bill Casey's, like, you know, family and whatnot, and they said, oh, yeah, that's something he would do. <laughs> and I just, I thought that was the most telling anecdote in like, the, no, the uh, guy was, interview. The guy
0: was a scumbag. I don't know. <laughs> right?
2: He was a weirdo.
1: The October surprise, I guess, for people that don't know, uh, supposedly, you know, the the Reagan campaign uh paid off Iranians to keep the hostages until after the election. So right.
0: yeah, right. amongst amongst other fuckery, I mean they, they also did the thing where they stole Carter's like debate prep. Yeah. Like, and like
2: thanks to they, George Will.
0: Yeah.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's that's crazy that he was the one that did that. Uh or that he was he was not that,
2: yet <laughs> a member of the ABC news staff and he leaked it to um
0: no, they should yeah. yeah, they have yeah. stole it. Like they, they stole it. it. Carter left it behind and he just like picked it up and was like, Oh, I'm gonna bring this because he was playing Carter um in, in Reagan's like mock debate. Yeah. You know, which, yeah. it's it's also funny that Reagan's mock debate style was that he had a bunch of like one liners on those fucking uh I mean that was, speech that there was a speech style. Yeah, you go couple again. one liners. <laughs> um
2: When I opposed socialized medicine, there was another piece of legislation talking about like when he was governor of California in the sixties, how he yeah. actually supported uh socialized medicine before it was it was um
0: well he he uh no he's talking about they're talking about medicaid he, he yeah yeah medicaid. and medicaid. uh so he was like he was like oh i didn't want to like you know basically like you know make these old people not have health insurance There was just another piece of legislation that everybody knows about that mm-hmm. i supported that would have mm-hmm. done the same thing mm-hmm. you know the,
1: the funniest the funniest ronald reagan story i ever heard was from this, I mean, he's sort of a friend of mine now because I've interviewed him so much. But uh,
0: Ronald Reagan?
1: <laughs> what? No, not Ronald. Jesus, not the uh, Antichrist. But frequent uh,
0: frequent guest Ronald Reagan. But, is, but is I, I, had John,
1: is I, I had John, I had John Barbaron, who uh, yeah. he's sort of into the JFK assassination, and Jim Garrison, and all that. But I, I'm not as interested in that. I had him on because he was he's a big showbiz figure. He started reality television with a show called Real People back in the day but he used to do an interview show in LA and he had Reagan on. I mean, he had a bunch of people on the show. I think he had um Cesar Chavez on at one point, uh, Jane Fonda at the height of her anti-war protesting. But when he had Reagan on, uh, apparently Reagan's handler was like, well, you have to tell us the questions in advance. Yeah. And Barbour was like, no, I'm not doing that. I, I I do a conversation show. And if you don't like it, I'll go out there right now, five minutes before the show and tell the audience that Reagan isn't, you know, isn't wanting to do an actual conversation. <laughs> and was, uh, after that, Reagan decided to do
0: it and he BS his way through the whole thing. He wasn't, he wasn't a, uh, he wasn't an off the cuff guy. Yeah.
2: Uh, yeah. He, was, yeah.
0: Kind of a, a,
2: he a, was, he was more of a, like in your face kind of thing.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, he was like a stage, like, I don't know, like a well manicured staged polished politician in the sense of like... Mm-hmm literally literally his thing consisted of like a bunch of index cards that would have one liners on it and he would literally like memorize the one liners and then or like and they would just all be like oh like something something government and then like you know like the the scariest phrase is, i'm from the government and i'm here to help and he like had all of those different um you know all of those different like jokes that people would like just kind of be disarmed and laugh at and he would shuffle them every time and it would be pretty mm-hmm. much the same speech but like in a different order um but then off the, when, when he went off the cuff he would like he, I mean, his brain seemed to have been going for a very long time. He yeah, was, There are things that he would hear, like fictional things you'd he hear on TV and he'd get confused or like details from movies and he'd get confused. And all of a sudden, like out of his mouth would come like some statistic that no one had ever heard. And it turns right. out it was from like a movie that he was in like 20 years ago. Well, the, he had Alzheimer's.
2: Um,
1: the <laughs> funniest part of the story for me that John told me was that, you know, he tried doing this off the cuff, like, I'm going to hold his feet to the fire. And Reagan would just change the topic like he'd be bringing up some serious topic like, oh, what about the wars? And, you know, uh, why don't we oppose the wars? And Reagan would just change the topic to something else about the American people in unity. It had nothing to do with what John was asking him about. It. John said to me, you know, he was a good operator, uh, but, you know, a horrible lying person as well.
0: Well, he, he, he also he found out, you know, the Carter debate is a great example because, you know, the, their strategy was that he just wanted to make Carter appear mean. Like that was the entire strategy. Like, he didn't have to win the debate. Carter just had to look like an asshole. Carter has spent four <laughs> yeah. years not like being a fucking I I call Carter like a strange elven man. Like he kind of reminds me of like a like a like an elf on like wingtip shoes or something. You know what I mean? Like he was just like, <laughs> yeah. like, strange and like odd and like austere, but like he wasn't mean. Like he was he was like the nice guy. So by like ruining that image that the American people seem to have of Carter. Like Reagan just decimated him without even like because they did the same thing they did with Trump where they're like fact checking. Yeah, they're, like, I, I That's know. I, true. And he's like,
1: like I, I know we're going off into a Reagan tangent, but I I just wanted to say this because I've always found it interesting. Out of all the like presidents we've had since like I don't know Eisenhower or Kennedy maybe, but like just Reagan is to me he's like the Patrick Bateman American psycho of presidents. <laughs> I have no. <laughs> There's there's nothing I can sympathize with, like right. I mean I mean Nixon Nixon was a horrible crook, but he's also yeah. like some guy that's bitter because he wasn't brought up within the Eastern establishment the way the Kennedys were. Mm-hmm. And I mean you know the the 1972 visit uh, to China I think was important. He at least gave us like the Endangered Species Act and some environmental protections. But, like, Reagan just wanted to wreck the entire welfare state. It's just an exactly. empty suit. There's well, nothing there. You Nixon, know, it's like Nixon Patrick was, Bateman.
0: It, Nixon was Nixon was a punching bag. That's what Nixon was. Yeah. Nixon was had spent 50 years being a punching bag. And, like, we were talking about Nixonland, like uh, the Rick Perlstein book. And you really get a, a feel for it in there. Like, Nixon has spent, like, 50 years getting just, like, the shit kicked out of him pretty much and just eating shit. Because, like, you know, because every single time they're like, oh, you can't win. But he would show up every single time. To like you know what i mean like to campaign for whoever the person is he'd bide his time mm-hmm. he would he would uh one story that rick carlstein had in in that book was um that he would travel around like travel around to every republican fundraiser after losing the nomination with one aid and would just show up and like give these speeches and you know and and he, he almost i mean he was he was manicured in a very different way than reagan was reagan obviously mm-hmm. was like the hollywood candidate and nixon kind of had like nixon had like these weird people kind of trying to make like a like a, a tv Thing out of him because he was so terrified of tv after uh his whole kennedy debacle so he, he kind of was he was scripted in a very different way but he had like the most machiavellian like sociopathic mind when it came to the elections like oh yeah yeah yeah. like he there's just nothing he wasn't willing to do but that's kind of where his whole career was that's why he was a fucking punching bag like there, he spent his career like there wasn't anything he wasn't <laughs> willing to do so it was like when when it come, came time to like i don't know like like fucking like burgle a hotel he's like Yeah, sure. I
1: mean, mean, what they they did to Daniel Ellsberg is like, you know, terrible breaking into a psychiatrist's office and whatnot. I'm not trying to – there's just something about like – there's something about Reagan that he's just – I don't know how anyone can like Reagan. I don't find anything likable about him just – like even in the way he presents himself. I'm like, oh my god, this is the most shallow just Hollywood human being alive.
2: Well, (laughs) nobody can really criticize him either. I mean he's you know very much elevated to sainthood in the republican yeah. party yeah
0: and like after uh, the fact like yeah he, i don't dude. think like when he left office like he he kind of got thatchered uh at that point like you know what i mean like it kind of was like his his uh his consensus i guess kind of fell apart towards the end yeah. and bush kind of took the brunt of it and that's why bush see, but that, that's
1: what's so weird about him too because it's like you can see i mean if you watch that Showtime documentary that just came out a few months ago, The Reagans, I think it came out back in October, mm-hmm. actually. Was I was talking to Matt Turnauer about that, the guy that directed it. And it's it's a very good documentary, but you know, the parallels between him and Trump are like very obvious, right down to yeah. like make America Great again. again. Like, yeah. yeah. And he used to he used to uh he was in bed with Birchers back in mm-hmm. California. Um and, so you know and I,
2: yet I, like I that, yeah. I say, and yet none of his children ever even, like, approved of Trump. Like, his atheist, like, progressive son, Ron, well, he Ron Jr., Trump. yeah. Reagan did yeah. not
0: like Trump. Reagan saw Trump as kind of this, like, weird cloying, like, hanging on, like, you know, like, because he, Ray, um, Trump tried to reach out to Reagan, Trump tried to lobby Reagan for a job at one point, like, mm-hmm. and he even tried to criticize Reagan, like, harshly in the fucking, uh, in, in the New York Times, he's got, like, a full-page ad, like, Trump tried to do all these different uh, things, and, and Reagan couldn't fucking stand it. The difference between, I think, all of the other Republicans we've really had, maybe not Bush so much, but like, uh, like Bush Jr. I mean, but like the difference between, yeah. <laughs> there's been like uh, these conservative figures, like, and and Reagan is that Reagan kind of had like this weird optimistic, like this weird optimistic, sunny side like morning in America. Well,
1: he, he was like yeah. he was like a positive thinking type guy. He was obsessed with that yeah. like, positive thought movement stuff, which. It's actually Trump has some overlap with that too, but, yeah, like, but Reagan is- was just like he thought the will of his mind, you know, the power of his will, almost like in a Nietzschean way. Uh, he probably wasn't, you know, that well read, so he didn't read Nietzsche. <laughs> but you get my point. Like, yeah. He thought just the power of his imagination would move the world. <laughs>
0: he also had an astrologer traveling around. Yeah,
1: oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> <thought> that,
0: <laughs> that's something <laughs> I picked up from that uh, Reagan's documentary. But,
1: he he um, probably he probably had had a point though in a way because he was so. He was so, like, forceful in his like, well, I'm just right, and you know, I'm gonna yeah. force my will down everyone's throat. That that it actually worked. For him. He was you couldn't penetrate him with criticism
0: because he wasn't self-reflective.
2: Yeah,
1: <laughs> like but it,
0: it, the whole thing is that um, I feel like he's like the distillation of American empire in that sense. Like, you know, like all these other people, like I don't know, like like Nixon had like détente, and like it was like, all right, this is like a like a because he really considered himself like the the foreign policy like. Like the foreign policy maven or whatever like he really was someone who understood the intricacies of it and so did kissinger and right. reagan's fucking foreign policy was just like well like we're, we're not gonna even like like move with them unless they you know what i mean like it, yeah it's just so like he was the distillation of american empire because he wouldn't even work with the fucking like ussr to try to like maintain peace with them like he was tearing up treaties like he, he kind of just felt like it was the the boot of american empire coming down fully hard uh which is why i think so many like conservatives were in love with reagan was because like you know they spent decades trying to be like why are we even doing this whole like cold war dance like we should just nuke the shit out of them and it seemed like reagan would be was the closest person to like doing that but at the same time i think that conservative politics in the end is is kind of focused on grievance like more yeah. than anything else and i've been thinking about this a lot like the conservative brand is is white hot rage literally white mm-hmm. hot rage and like and, and just grievance politics is why yeah. like Tucker Carlson has done so well because literally he's just like the embodiment of like 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 angry grievance like so Reagan's kind of the one figure that's not really like that i mean it's kind of sad that his movie career didn't take off but like yeah you know like that's kind of the saddest thing you can really uh say about like his 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 career
1: well i mean i think grievance plays a role with Reagan too because his big thing was always you know oh i i was an fdr democrat man i was an fdr democrat yeah. I didn't leave the Democratic Party. The Democratic the Party, left, party me. left me, which, you know, that's dog whistling. We know what he
0: means yeah. by that. But Well, it's that's, sort of a, that's why the thing with Carter was so important. You know, he had to be sympathetic. So making Carter look mean, making it look like Carter was bullying him, despite the fact that Carver, Carter was literally just this, like, weird, lighthearted, like, like elven creature, like, literally just, like, floating above, like, the... Like, Carter is so fucking weird. Like, after, after reading fucking Reaganland, I'm just like, Jesus Christ, this dude is president. 70s politicians democrats in general were kind of like that like they were all into like all the new age shit and like the way like it it was clearly like like proto neoliberal politics or like early neoliberal politics but like the way that they said it was like as if they had like done acid a few too many times and like (laughs) they're looking at everything through like a prism and at the moment after you know nixon had just been like this this force of despair like everybody kind of was like oh wow maybe we'll try that and then reagan kind of came in and was just like america America, America.
1: I, I was going to say, it's it's funny because tying that back to the Manchurian Kennedy, isn't it fascinating how, I think Manchurian Kennedy comes about in, the film comes in, what, 62, 1962. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, just, you know, in the 70s, just a decade later, you know, we have a whole new type of paranoid thriller that is more like oh, maybe we should be more distrustful of our own government. You know, mm-hmm. the, the Alan J. Pacula type films, like All the President's Men include, <laughs> Um, Parallax View, which is probably my favorite of those. But they're, they're very different. It's not, they don't play off of the same uh, type of paranoia. They're more like, oh, the the force that is destroying the country is actually from within, and it's not an alien force either. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what, you know, just a few and, and years prior, yeah. it was all communism and McCarthy, you know.
0: That's where the, that's where like the morning in America slogan for Reagan comes in because he comes in he essentially like, you know, after this, this decade where like nobody trusted our government, no one trusted, I mean, Reagan least of all, but like nobody trusted our country anymore. No one trusted the people around them. He's like, it's okay to love American empire again. So he like steps out and he's like, it's a different day. Like, and people really like clung to that because people don't want to be cynical, obviously they kind of just at the time anyway, wanted to be like, kind of blindly patriotic. And right Reagan they want to be like
2: that. optimistic patriots
0: yeah like right. at the time when every single thing like media wise and like you know press wise was telling you like oh we're wrong here's what's wrong like the church committee yeah. came out the CIA like just every like scandal after scandal Reagan mm-hmm. was like the one person who was willing to just like step in and be like maybe maybe loving america you know if if loving america is a crime i'm fucking guilty and then everyone was just <laughs> like oh look at this guy <laughs> you know
1: in some ways we're kind of back to that point i mean just uh just recently, it was the you know the the Pentagon Papers, the anniversary yeah, of the Pentagon really, Papers, yeah. and I, I'll give the New York Times credit. They published a piece by Andrew Basevich, who is one of the few conservatives I like agree with certain things on, especially foreign policy, because he's anti-war. He believes in climate change, thinks racism is a problem. Uh, but you know, he published a piece in the New York Times saying, you know, we need to look back at the Pentagon Papers and learn lessons from it. But they also had to publish another piece, which was by some neoconservative goon that was saying what Ellsberg did was an assault on democracy.
0: Oh, that, <laughs> it, that, um, that piece, when you actually read it, the final paragraph, it wasn't about Ellsberg or the Pentagon Papers at all. The final, pa- the, the final paragraph of it actually pretty much just said, and that's why we shouldn't pardon Snowden. Right. Exactly. Well, yeah, exactly. oh, yeah. <laughs>
1: it, it, it's all part of this, like, oh, any anyone who, you know, questions the system is unpatriotic.
0: Yeah. That guy wrote a book called, like, uh, he wrote a book, like, it's okay to have secrets. Like, it's a book right. that justifies having secrets in the security hmm. state. Like, he's the most ghoulish of the, like, of the um, apologists for, for our, uh, for fucking CIA activities and shit.
1: Well, I mean, it, it, it's just interesting because, like, both um, – you know, both parties try to like play off civic nationalism these days. I mean, the Democrats do it in their own way, but there, there is sort of like a nationalist bent to all our politics, at least the mainstream one in uh, America.
0: Oh, I I wanted to, uh, this is the other clip I I took from the, uh, from the Reagan, the Reagan brainwashing thing, Um, just to get us back, I guess, on, 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 on track with this but i, I agree. sorry for
1: ranting no it's sorry
0: <laughs> i think that um i, I think that biden kind of has biden's like blind dumb optimism kind of has some parallels to uh Reagan's to reagan in a weird way but um <clears throat> anyway so this is this is the this is the other clip i took from the uh reagan one I expect it seems earned
3: its own reward not from your fellow pows but from the chinese who
4: always acted promptly Poor fellow, what a shame. Obviously, he doesn't place the need of the crew above his own selfish purposes. We won't hurt him. We'll take good care of him, just as good as we are taking care of you. Those heroic
3: soldiers who did try to organize the others for escape or to resist the Chinese were segregated in special heavily guarded camps for hopeless reactionaries. In this way, divide and conquer utter planned isolation of the individual was accomplished by substituting the standards and values of the group for those of the individual men who didn't conform who tried to lead were denounced as poisonous individualists and segregated as criminals this is the fundamental device of communism based on the idea that one man has no significance he is just a fragment of the mass the class Becoming and remaining in favor with the Chinese included informing on fellow prisoners, telling about bad attitudes and reactionary remarks, or infractions of camp rules. But it really didn't mean much, because after all, the man informed upon was never punished. Not actually. He had only to confess his crime to a sympathetic camp instructor, write an essay promising never to repeat his crime against society, and sign it. That's all. Now, what harm is there in this? The man informed upon wasn't really furious at the man who'd informed on him. He didn't go back to camp and try to kill him or beat him up. He never felt exactly the same about that fellow again. Was careful what he said and never got close to anyone again. He became more isolated, alone.
4: Man, it's cold out there. Must be 30 below. You guys are stinking up this place. Come on, you. All of you, outside. Come on, on your feet. Out. Come on, outside. What
0: else? No. Yeah. So you can see where like the Manchurian candidate, I guess, is, uh, kind of taken right from man.
2: Talk about brainwashing. Yeah. (laughs) Having to like write an essay is like, right. Having to write an NDA. Don't ever tell anybody about it.
0: Yeah. I kind of
2: think
0: it's 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 fucking it's, it's just it's fucking fascinating that whole thing because like <laughs> honestly like my thought is like oh wow like Chinese fucking like intern like or whatever like Chinese fucking prisoner camps just seem based like like you don't have to do anything don't worry like just kick your feet up and Reagan's like that's where that's when they get you <laughs> if they if they had that's given them if they had given them the bamboo and, under the fingernails no everyone would have uh everyone would have escaped but It's those those nice Chinese that are – and we're not even – I mean, like, obviously, like, the Chinese had sent, you know, um, a lot of troops, you know, uh, to fight for for North Korea. But, like, it's not like we were at war with China specifically. Like, it was a proxy war. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, so, like, the the fact that, like, his entire focus is just on, like, the Chinese, like, you don't see Korea mentioned in that fucking movie once. No, not
2: at all. (laughs) There's not, like, one single mention of Korea at all, period.
0: That whole
1: time I just kept thinking of a really based – a uh, 1960s movie called War Hunt which I don't I think I may be like one of the few people who has seen that movie because no one remembers it but it's uh it stars John it. Saxon John Saxon who would later uh appear in movies like he was the lieutenant in Nightmare on Elm Street he was in Black Christmas uh, oh and Enter the Dragon he's the the white dude but um it's a really interesting movie because it's an anti-war film and he plays a a um uh, a member of the army who just, he enjoys killing and he can't stop. And it's ultimately like very much a meditation on war and how bad it is. And it's funny because no one remembers that movie, even though I think it uh, won awards and whatnot, but everyone remembers these like documentaries and movies like *Manchurian candidates saying, oh, the Russians are coming. The Russians are coming.
0: Yeah. And, and I mean, some of the more satirical takes on it, like Dr. Strangelove, obviously is going to be <laughs> seen as like an American classic forever. Um yeah, That's true. Yeah. But yeah. like I don't know. We watched uh, we watched Kiss Me Deadly for the first episode and it was kind of Okay, like, yeah. Uh, it was kind of like a proto It's like a proto um like satirical look at the Cold War, I feel like, because it was coming out like a year after um coming out a year after the McCarthy hearings, which is kind of bald. I mean but,
1: I think though you can get away with like satirical anti-war and like counterculture films back then whereas like I don't know. The more serious ones, people don't remember as much. Like, uh, there's that one Dalton Trumbo did, Uh, Johnny Got His Gun. But, you know, that movie's like really, really intense. I think they used footage of it in um, Metallica's music video for one, but no one remembers that one either because, you know, like you do a real serious meditation on, hey, maybe war isn't, you know, all it's cracked up to be. Maybe all of this uh, patriotism we have around, ooh, let's go to war, maybe it's a bad thing, but you don't you don't really see those films being remembered that
0: much these days. I mean,
1: strange love, of course, but that's more on the the comedy side. Yeah.
0: I I don't think necessarily you could get away with it. um, in like the fifties when Kiss Me Deadly was coming out. Um, But like in the sixties and seventies, I mean, really when Vietnam fell apart was a, you know, when when
1: new Hollywood, I think in the, you know, but by the late sixties, things get a little bit more open to experimentation you know because movies like bonnie and clyde and easy rider come out and there is sort of a rebel atmosphere i guess yeah yeah
0: but um you know i mean in the 50s you saw like the Hayes code which is you know we kind of had a yeah a long conversation about that which is like and and, you know um manchurian candidate too you know kind of came out you know and and the haze code was just falling apart and you see the end of it when he you know he takes out uh takes out his mom and his stepdad like it was two years after the Hayes Code had fallen apart. He still has to kill himself I, at the end of I that. wanted to talk about that ending yeah. for a
1: second here, if we could, because yeah. I, I love, you know, they have that tacked on scene at the end where Frank Sinatra is like, he gave his life for love of country. And I'm like, no, I don't, I don't think Lawrence Harvey's character did it for love of country. Yeah. I think he just really hated his stupid mother. Yeah. <laughs> it's oh, it very personal, you
0: know. He, never, he doesn't mention uh, country once throughout that movie. Right, You know what I mean? Like, that's never his motivation. He's just like, ah, fuck this bitch.
1: Well, the other <laughs> thing, the, the, the funny thing about the movie, too, is I think there's a little bit of ambiguity to what Angela Lansbury actually believes ideologically. I'm not sure that she's actually, like, committed to communism. I think she's just she a power she's not, junkie.
0: She says yeah. she's not committed to, uh, to communism. Um, at the end of it, she says, my plan is to uh, exert so much power that I push out the Soviet influence her her only yeah. ideology is power like yeah um you know and you know well that's, that's
1: why the Jordan, Jim Jordan the one congressman that hates her the senator that hates her he's right about her she's a fascist yeah. rally type
0: you know yeah and you know i i think that i mean it's, it's talking really about you know mccarthy like the the thought that like you know i mean not that you know the soviets aren't like it's not that the soviets are harmless and they're not trying to take over the government they clearly are but like the bigger threat in the end is Angela Lansbury, like believing that she can kind of just control everything. Like she kind of is more of like a, more of like a a Hitler type figure almost than like a, like a Soviet like expansionist. You know what I mean? And I think that was very,
1: that was very felt in Hollywood at the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mentioned Dalton Trumbo, Uh, you know, he was, you know, out blacklisted for so Mm -hmm. long. And even, even people that weren't necessarily completely blacklisted, People like Vincent Price. I know uh, his daughter has talked about this. Uh, before he became Mr. Horror Movie Guy in the seventies and whatnot, he was sort of like graylisted because they thought, "Oh, he's he's a pinko or something." You
2: know, he's yeah,
0: one of these yeah.
1: communist sympathizers. A lot of people suffered in the film industry because of that.
0: Yeah. No. And um, you know, I mean, amongst others, graylisted things. is a graylisted is a is a great um, it is a great term for it because you know even even the people that aren't necessarily um, that aren't blacklisted or kind of given like warnings, like tons of people didn't end up blacklisted, but still had to like speak in front of the, uh, the House Un-American Activities Committee. And also yeah. the, the people that did end up having to speak in front of the House Un-American Activities Committee and like buckling to the subpoena um, uh-huh. kind of, a lot of them took off and didn't, weren't in films again until the sixties because they felt so bad that like people that they considered friends and like acquaintances, they kind of ratted on. Um, well,
2: Lauren Bacall and uh, Bogey Bacall, I think, uh, Humphrey Bogart rather, um, they they testified in the committee and they they were able to work, but I think that was some.
0: Um... No, it was it was personal. It was like personal. Oh, um, people were so <laughs> conflicted uh, at that point by their own actions because you know it's you know they're they're basically snitching on their coworkers and yeah, there wasn't any like within the fervor there wasn't any thought to like oh these people aren't going to be able to work for the next thirty years and they're going to be blacklisted like kind of just like kind of the the feeling of being scared shitless by like McCarthy and like the thought that maybe there is like soviet infiltration and and, like i don't know like everything that happened during that time period everywhere in the country was pretty fucking reactionary yeah um like when people are like oh you know it's just like it's just the times it's just the times like in 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 this case like it kind of fucking is like (laughs) not that it justifies anything but like the the consequences were fucking you know terrifying if uh (laughs) yeah
1: I well, think people the, yeah. people can be surprised, too, by, like, some of the people that sold their, you know, friends in Hollywood out. Like, uh, you know, even like Frank Capra, people don't know this because the Capra state, you know, basically tried to cover it up for a long time. But Capra sold out a lot of his friends, yeah. you know, because, oh, I don't want to be called a communist. And it's funny because Capra was a lifelong publican, too. So. <laughs> also had a huge thing against immigrants. But there were a lot of people that just sold out their colleagues, Oh, yeah, definitely. They're communists.
0: It's pretty or funny late. that fucking, uh, Jimmy Stewart was one of the most reactionary people in, in, in Hollywood for his entire life. He was, uh, yeah, he was he was well,
2: terrible. Well, along with that uh, selling out, selling other people out, like Cliff Robertson, a famous actor who was in No Way to Treat Ladies, sold uh, one of his friends out for check embezzlement in the 70s when he was working for Columbia Pictures. And that actor, I think, was jailed and never worked again.
0: But yeah.
2: Cliff Robertson, you know, worked up until his passing, up until his dying day. And I mean,
0: there, there are some people that are like, you know, I mean, like, like look at Reagan's type of uh, type of like vapid whatever. Like, he had no problem selling out anybody. Like, mm-hmm. he, I don't think at any point in his life he ever thought to feel conflicted about it. Yeah. Um, well, the,
1: the, the, I mentioned the Capra thing too, by the way. Just be, everyone always finds that shocking that he would sell people out because everyone thinks of him as like, right. oh, his films are so pro labor and pro left. But you know, yeah, you'd but be not, surprised if you look the into his AFL- history. Yeah, cio was <laughs>
0: selling people out. Yeah. Like, that's true. In much of the same. Everybody line.
2: was selling everybody out, but like mm-hmm. a lot of stuff was being kept locked up uh, because the studios were really kind of tight knit. I think uh, what j. G. was saying in the '70s, uh, like in the late 1960s, early 1970s, through, throughout that period, uh, the studios started kind of letting, letting their guards down a little and started revealing pretty much everything that was going on in Hollywood. Now we know pretty much now we know pretty much everything that goes on on in Hollywood because the studios uh, just don't have much control anymore.
0: yeah well, the studio system broke um, yeah
2: it broke big system. time
0: pretty 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 quickly uh and then i often
2: tell people i
1: hope that happens again i don't think it will <laughs> <laughs> well
0: see now that now the whole problem is that like it's not even there's like a studio system it's that the the media consolidation has gotten so bad that like right.
2: you yeah
0: know, you can't even imagine right. those companies falling apart and you can't imagine like uh like you know as, as much <sighs> as he was a as much as he was essentially like um probably the most abhorrent like person ever in fucking u.s history like Teddy Roosevelt and his crusade against, like, trusts, like, during that, like, the reformist period, like, you can't see anything like that ever happening again. No. Um, you, no. know, and, and, you know, you the, know, the studio system broke because, you know, all, like, all of these other markets opened up, and like, all of these, you know, every other country was producing movies, and if you wanted your movies made, you could just kind of start a, a movie theater, and you know what I mean? So, like, or a movie studio, like, so that's kind of when it, all of that stuff fell apart, but, like, yeah, like, the, the consolidation at this point is rigid like to the point where to be on a mainstream or out of a mainstream studio anyway like i I don't think that's ever that consensus is ever breaking the the names will change i'm sure but like yeah yeah the the i don't know like it's crazy it's crazy it's better
2: yeah it's like just better erase everything just change the name then everyone forgets or the studios do
0: yeah and they're not really per like they're not really person driven anymore like
2: yeah not at oh all. It's all uh, electronically driven.
0: Well, it's like, it's corporate driven. Like, yeah. you know what I mean, like, like
1: I, I often tell people, I'm like, when I look at a guy like Michael Bay or uh, <laughs> like a Zack Snyder, these guys feel like they're like just hired guns that do what the studios say. Like if a tour theory, you know, there's holes in a tour theory anyways, but yeah, there are definitely no tours today. Like, <laughs>
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Give them
2: a bunch of money, make it make a Superman movie. <laughs> Give them a bunch of money, make them a, make a Star Trek movie. Make all these big ass franchises that will either flop. I mean, most of the stuff that's come out in the last like five years doesn't really perform expe- to uh, people's expectations. And what next? I mean, well, it's, I it's weird
1: that- because capitalism, I thought, was supposed to allow for individualist creative expression, yeah. but everything seems so streamlined now it's almost like hmm maybe it doesn't do what we think it does
0: the thing is the, the thing is i think that um a lot of the the more arthouse figures i guess are uh you know i mean they're making their movies online they're kind of financing it themselves but then it comes to distribution it's like if you want it distri- like distributed like kind of have to make a deal with some company somewhere whether that's a streaming service or something else mm-hmm. and you know they're they're willing to give so much creative freedom like creative freedom that it ruins an artist like mm-hmm. <laughs> Like, cause everything all of a sudden uh, for them is like, you know, I mean, they, they, they send notes back and stuff, but they're like, Oh, don't worry. You can do anything you want. And it's like, you know, it, it's behind the
2: scenes, their studio interference.
0: Yeah. And, and also just, it's too big. Like it's too big. Like they they hand budgets that are like this huge budget. And then the person's just kind of like, uh, 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 like I was reading about, um, Vulture did a thing on, uh, Ryan Murphy, the American horror stories guy and his mm-hmm. Netflix deal mm-hmm. and like how that's ruined his fucking creativity because it's like, he just has some, like He's just like, oh, I'll do this. I'll do this. I'll do this. And it's all like just trash at yeah.
1: this point. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm just curious. Did you guys get a chance to talk about – so John Frankenheimer, the director of The Manchurian Candidate, he got mm-hmm. to follow this up with a little movie called Seven Days in May. Did you guys get to mention that before? Or...
0: No, I haven't yeah. seen that.
1: Okay. Well, you're going to have to do a movie night on that because that's actually extremely subversive for a movie that came out in 1974 – that Frankenheimer actually did the movie at the request of Kennedy uh, when when John F. Kennedy was president, and it's a movie slightly influenced by the what was it the the Wall Street push or the the, the Wall Street plot that Smedley Butler uh, exposed. But it's it's about uh, a group of right wing generals in the Pentagon that plan to overthrow the president, mm-hmm. and it's like it's very very subversive for a movie that came out in 1964. And in a way, I, I, it's much more um, up front about the dislike of, you know, right wing sort of McCarthyite politics in that era than even the Manchurian candidate
0: could be. Yeah, well, and, and Kennedy kind of represented a, a, a break from that, like a break from that style of politics, like yeah. a break from because I, I was talking about this with people on a. Uh, on, on, on Twitter like a couple days ago, like I've been reading a lot of Stephen Kinzer and it, there's like, you know, um, Kennedy kind of understood more than any other president really at the time that like he understood that nationalism, like democratic nationalism does not equal communism mm-hmm. whatsoever. Like democratic nationalism and, and like post-colonial, like, I, I don't know, like liberation movements are something that could be easily like driven to the, to the US side um like e- even if they're like kind of third worldist movements so like there's you know after relentlessly like pursuing Sukarno in Indonesia um during Eisenhower there was like a, a short two-year break where they kind of we, we like we were still training um people at Fort Leavenworth obviously but like we kind of uh, let Sukarno back into the to the you know the the national or the global stage because you know Kennedy was like he's gonna go to the Soviet Union like I understand like like he's not going to go to the Soviet Union if he has, like, Americans as an ally. But, like, he is, like, if if you're just like, yo, fuck this guy. He's going to start getting <laughs> weapons from fucking... I'm,
1: I'm assuming you guys have read The Jakarta Method. Yeah. Yeah,
0: I have it's, it right
2: here.
1: One, one of the most interesting yeah. aspects of that book, and one of the points that Vincent Bevins is making in that, that I think sometimes people miss, the real victims of the Cold War in a lot of ways were the non-aligned movement.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, yep. it was
1: these it was the third world that got stuck between the two sides and you know, they suffered the most out of all in that conflict.
0: And, and Kinzer makes that point pretty frequently too um, during that time period, because, you know, first of all, you know, Eisenhower had a uh, Allen Dull- or Alan Dulles and John Foster Dulles as the two, like, you know, like the, the overt and covert, like, like holding of the state. And they had no interest whatsoever in like a non-aligned movement. Like, to them, like, to especially to John Foster Dulles, like, if you weren't, like, aligned with America, you were a communist. Like, there's no there's no middle ground. There was no, like, understanding that, like, a third-worldist movement might want liberation because he didn't even view, like, uh, African, Asian, like, you know, he didn't view them as, like, Latin American, like, as people, really, to start with. You know, like...
1: Yeah, well, the Dulles brothers had, like, a very... It's like they have a very black and white, like, yeah. good versus evil sort of... I mean, they were very you know, influenced by Christian theology in its Not American really form.
0: to it came to uh, Hitler, but... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> but, yeah. No, and, and that kind of is what, you know, got us into the Cold War situation that we were in. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I mean, under Kennedy, like, Kennedy kind of understood. Kennedy really did, like, he ran on being more of a sympathetic uh, Cold Warrior, but sympathetic to liberation movements in, in these different countries. Yeah, I, I think and the best way here. to put it
1: is, like, slightly less insane version of a cold warrior (laughs)
0: yeah Yeah. or no just i mean maybe just a a cold warrior that also understands that uh they uh, the interests aren't black and white like so like it's it's a it's a more it's nuanced um like but it's not like it's not like he was stopping uh you know because he was obsessed with fucking killing castro like Mm. he thought about Mm -hmm. killing castro non-stop every day of the fucking week because he was so embarrassed by the fucking uh, Bay of pigs, like within like a year of taking office, so like yeah, no, no, special, no, yeah,
1: that's definitely true. I guess I'm just saying that like th- I think there are even elements further to the right of of Kennedy that like by comparison, like they make Kennedy look completely sane, you know, <laughs> yeah. in terms of foreign policy. I mean, you look at like a General Edwin Walker or a Curtis LeMay, like they're they're pretty extreme figures in their thinking about the Cold War.
0: Yeah, and then and then you have like LBJ. Who is kind of just disinterested? Like yeah, the Vietnam War is really his one foreign policy obsession. And like, if if trying to had, end
2: the war and uh, yeah. get out safely,
0: he ends up greenlighting the the massacres in uh in in Indonesia because he's upset that Sukarno. Not that Sukarno is is allying with the fucking Soviet Union. He's just disinterested in the entire thing and realizes that Sukarno isn't going to be his like Vietnam ally. So, like, you know, finally Alan Dulles gets, like, and his accolades get to do it and, like, you know, just help fucking, like, destroy Indonesia because LBJ is just like, well, I, don't, I have no use for him and I don't really care. Like, right. <laughs> Um, and, and Vincent Bevins makes that point. Uh, and, and, uh Like, I, I was working on a, a documentary that didn't end up getting finished, and I hope one day it does, but I was working on a Jakarta Method documentary because he gave a, a, a talk at Jacobin, and uh, mm-hmm. And so I, I was like cutting that down and that's what made, got me interested in Stephen Kinzer because I was trying to find footage of um, the Dulles brothers for that documentary. Um, mm-hmm. And I like couldn't find them anywhere. And then I finally like found that Stephen Kinzer book. Um,
1: K- Kinzer, by uh, the well, way, is like one of the best out there. I, yeah. I, I could read everything he's written and just, you know, yeah. he is like top notch. I was so happy I had him on Parallax Views a month or so ago. And he ended the show in the funniest way possible. He, he, I was like, "Well, what do you think average Americans can do?" And he just says, "Torment your congressman. <laughs> <laughs> just keep calling and writing me It's like I'm not sure that'll work, but I like the torment your congressman
2: part. See, now I'm going to have to actually find Tinser <laughs> find his books, because now you guys are just being in- good influences on me about it. Yo,
0: do you think now you, you got you me interested? On, do you think you could try to convince him to come on a stream with all of us and like break down a? a- we
1: should try to figure yeah. out a way to do that.
0: <laughs> yeah, maybe. I yeah, I, really, I like the idea of doing this. Like. Around film because, like, I feel like every fucking leftist podcast is just kind of doing like, here's what's in the news. So the idea uh, of like doing this, not just based around politics, but based around film and kind of um, like, like that like pop of, like, culture doing, kind of thing. Yeah, like viewing what, it through that lens makes it a lot more interesting.
1: In regards to the film portion of this discussion, why do you guys think that all these years later, the Manchurian Candidate has such I mean it's still really resonant and a really well loved film and so mm-hmm. many films have ripped it off. While I was watching I was re-watching the movie just well it's before been we got on once. here. That's true. That's true. But even even if you if you go back to the seventies, there were movies like uh, Telephone with mm-hmm. um Charles Bronson and uh, Donald Pleasence. it's a complete rip-off of the Manchurian candidate. I mean this this sort of plot line was recycled over and over during the Cold War and it's I have still a, recycled I have a, um... now.
0: We watched this we watched this earlier but we can watch it again i have a stephen kinzer talking about this um mm-hmm. he gave a he gave a, us uh, a lecture um where he literally he literally talked about this subject so um here let me try to pull this up really fast but yeah like the fact that in the 70s the 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 Manchurian candidate um like uh the Manchurian candidate genre i guess of of film kind of takes off um in, in like this really in this really obsessive way um Their minds must have been been fertilized. fertilized. They were open to to this crazy idea. Why? I
6: think it was because of fiction, because of the stories and the movies and the books these people absorbed as they were growing up. There were (coughs) Alan Poe stories, Sherlock Holmes stories, Gaslight, movies about Sengali. people go out and kill because an evil psychiatrist has hypnotized them. And I think these guys, consciously or unconsciously, Internalized this fantasy and concluded that what fiction writers could imagine, science could make real. (laughs) The interesting footnote to this is that, as after MKUltra became known to the public beginning in the 1970s, it spawned a whole new genre of fiction books, novels, movies like Spotless Mind, Born Identity. Men in Black, all of these have mind control or mind washing as a theme. So a CIA project that was nurtured by fiction ultimately wound up nurturing a whole new subgenre of fiction itself. Um, regarding the Manchurian candidate, uh, it's really a, uh, a very interesting story. I, first of all, I think the uh, description that you gave is, is amazingly accurate. It's true. The only ones who really believed this stuff was possible were the people inside. They consulted other people like, for example, the, the, at the Menninger Clinic. They conducted the, consulted the Menninger Brothers, leading psychologists around ran this famous psychoanalytic institute, and they both told them, this is nonsense, you're barking up a crazy tree, this is never gonna result in anything. But since that wasn't the right answer, that was just filed away, and there were other people writing in places like Argosy and True Magazine who told them, yes, it worked. So they, they love that stuff. One of these guys, they actually hired as a consultant. Uh, (laughs) So I just want to mention a little bit about the Manchurian candidate though, specifically. Um, I found a very interesting memo uh, that uh, remarked about this. And I believe that uh, the author of this actually commented on it during a, a Senate hearing. So the book of the Manchurian candidate was the first time that, masses of Americans were exposed to the idea of brainwashing. But it came out just at the time when inside the CIA, chemists were reaching the conclusion that mind control is a myth and there can never be any such thing as a Manchurian candidate. So this guy, uh, this chemist actually says, that "That movie caused us, that book and movie caused us a lot of problems because just as we discovered that something couldn't happen, the whole world began to believe that it could.
0: Yeah, so I don't know. I,
1: I, I, I just cool. want to say I'm impressed. I mean, that dude knows his movies. I mean, he yeah. just mentioned 1944's Gaslight. That's a deep cut.
0: I wanna, I wanna watch that for a stream now. That like I've uh, been, been reading the the MK Ultra book he did because he talks about that a lot in it, and I feel like it could be a cool follow up stream. But um, I didn't know that. I didn't even know the term Gaslight was like that that old. To be honest, yeah, but, it
2: came from that. Sorry, yeah, yeah. I had to step away for a moment, and get a refill.
0: So when I miss,
2: yeah when I, I miss know,
0: watch the end of the the kinzer uh clip um i don't I, I so i think it's i mean one one big reason i think in the 70s that uh this genre kind of comes out like comes out swinging is uh the church committee and it's mm-hmm. kind of the the first time we're really finding out that like a lot of this stuff even happened um and and you know i mean and that's that's along with you know watergate and and the role that the fucking cia played in in watergate and like you know like so so all of this stuff kind of happens in rapid fire and mm-hmm. i feel like suddenly people are like people are like can you imagine like what the cia has been doing this whole time and these movies kind of come out based on that like like movie after movie after movie about like you know mind control or like about you know just countercultural like countercultural fucking like anti-government like propaganda kind of you know what I mean like yeah just Man-wise. all of these ideas kind of are, are, are happening then because like people kind of for the first time are realizing um, how dark or how far we had really gone, I guess, to try to win the Cold War. Mm -hmm. And at the tail end of the, of the Cold War, I mean, you know, it kind of, it petered on for another decade, but like at a time when like, we're kind of moving our focus from Russia to like Latin America and places like in like, you know, like, and then things seem to be dying down. It seems like a perfect moment to like, like look back on it and say like, you know, did we really have to do all this stuff? So, like the the, the spy thing, the spy narrative, I think takes off from there. Um, I don't
2: know. Yeah, you know, Men in Black, the whole neuralizer thing. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I didn't even think of that being a connection, but that's definitely. Yeah. Yeah, the whole uh, memory forgetter thing they have. Yeah.
2: Flashy thing, and the aliens too.
0: Um. So yeah. So I think that um yeah i think that there's probably a couple of directions that we can take this i don't um well
2: i was also thinking of um ai you know artificial intelligence in a way mm-hmm. that that kind of ties in with the uh what uh kinzer was talking about as far as like this boy that's a robot who um who thinks he's real but he's not and um God, I got to go back and watch that movie because it's been a while since I've seen it. But um, also, it's just one of my favorite Spielberg movies. <laughs> so, uh, what's your guys' take on that? As far as um, as far as Kinzer? and what, how would how would you think Kinzer would um, put something like AI?
0: I mean, I don't think that he would necessarily have a take right now on AI. He's kind of more talking yeah. about like the intelligence state, which definitely, I mean. We can see uses that kind of software but I don't think it's necessarily fully uh, tied in with the foreign policy aspect of it yet. I, I'd be interested to hear um, what Kenji thinks of like, drones, like mm-hmm. and, and that kind of warfare because the, the book that I like one of the last ones that I read, Overthrow kind of stops the Iraq war.
1: The, the thing that gets me is just how much uh, this sort of like Red Scare paranoia is still with us I mean, I get it that, you know, people got pulled into Russiagate and whatnot, but like even, I, I saw that there was a New York Times op-ed, I think it was on June 25th, Chris Carter, X-Files creator, mm-hmm. wrote a whole piece about like, well, conspiracy theories are B- BS and, you know, there's not going to be any revelations about UFOs, which I, I think he's right about that. I don't think we're going to have any revelations about an identified aerial phenomena. but then... Right in the middle of this little op-ed, he says, but, you know, there are some conspiracies that are true. Like, you know, definitely the Russians and the Cubans are hitting our uh, embassies with m- microwave radio weapon
0: technology.
1: And I'm like, oh, that how one is this was, any different? That microwave radio um, That one was spread in, <laughs> in
0: 20, 2020. Um, yeah. Like, as the right. election was heating up, there was, a, there was an article that came out that was, like, these, uh, these like, ex-intelligence people, which, why the fuck would you trust them? But, like, I think it was in the Daily Beast, and the Daily Beast just, like, loves to just report, like, you know, because they're, like, kind of the, I like to call them, like, the, the vanguard of establishment media, you know what I mean? Like, they're kind yeah. of, like, they're kind of the farthest you can get to trash, I think, within the yeah. establishment <laughs> media. Well,
1: the thing is, people like, like Carter yeah. and, like, the Daily Beast are saying, well, you know, conspiracy theories are crap unless, you know, they're conspiracy theories about evil foreign governments. Yeah. Like, yeah. So,
0: they, so they they, they had a, a thing where these uh these ex-intelligence, like this ex-intelligence guy came back and claimed that like he he thinks that the Russians had hit him with like a, a microwave ray or something. And like it was just un, like uncritically reported by the Daily Beast. They're like, did you hear about what happened to this guy? Mm-hmm. And it was like clearly at a time where uh the Democratic Party was trying to to – that they were tougher on Russia and China than Trump was. And so, like this this Russia gate moment, it kind of seemed like it died down for a second, started back up again, and that was like one of the more ridiculous, the more ridiculous ones.
1: I don't I mean for me, it's like a Quay Bono thing. Like, what what exactly does Cuba have to gain from
0: this? I mean, <laughs> uh,
1: you know, it kind of sucks for Cuba because you know, we were starting to normalize relations, then yeah. Trump screwed all that up, and now He's they're Cuba being accused the of microwave weapons targeted at you know
0: and Biden Biden shows no interest in like the two foreign policy things the two foreign policy policy I think accomplishments of the Obama administration that were positive like Mm -hmm. lists and lists of ones that were negative and the two that were positive was normalizing relations with Cuba um or starting to like like thawing that out starting to end the blockade and And the
1: JCPOA right
0: yeah and 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 Biden Biden shows no interest in, in salvaging either of those uh those accomplishments, which are big accomplishments, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. And, and his, his entire uh, State Department is taken out of the Obama State Department, and they seem to not want to salvage their um, their accomplishments either.
2: Right. <laughs> it's like they're trying to, like, you know, whitewash their own history, to put it bluntly.
0: Yeah. Or appear tough enough, like, appear tough enough that they're, they're willing to get rid of all positive developments. and well, just, that's right.
1: I think a lot of it is driven by this, like, well, I ha- I'm Joe Biden. I have to unify the country. And, you know, we have to listen to what the Republicans are saying. It's like, <laughs> no, that always just ends with you getting pushed even further to the right than you right. already are. But. Yeah. Right.
2: Yeah.
0: There's also moments where he's pushed. Uh, he pushed Reagan and Bush to the right. That's true. Kind of, yeah. yeah. It was yeah. Fucking, like terrifying, but also hilarious. Like, and, and he he just tried doing it again. Wait, I'll find I'll find the clip of it. He, um his the Biden administration is once again doing the exact same thing that Biden did in the in the '90s with the with the crime bill. Um, I found this the other day. I got to go back a while. Ago. Um, but Jen Jen Saki, um, Jen basically Psaki. basically uh uh whitewashed Biden's um Biden's long criminal record by like or Biden's long criminal justice record by saying like oh like you know uh I I don't think that the hold on, let me, let me see if it's, let me see if it's this one. Because um, she said it, she said it in a very fucking terrifying kind of way, to be honest. Um,
7: and I will note that while the president ran on and won the most votes of any candidate in history in a platform of boosting funding for law enforcement after Republicans spent decades trying to cut the COPS program, which again is public record, we don't need to. Uh, under undervalue uh, under the, the intelligence of the American people.
5: And the sad part is that we have, we have no more police in the streets of our major cities than we had 10 years ago. And what the president proposes won't help much. What he proposes is no increase over what the Congress has already approved last year. In a nutshell, the president's plan doesn't include enough police officers to catch the violent thugs, not enough prosecutors to convict them, not enough judges to sentence them and not enough prison cells to put them away for a long time. So notwithstanding the fact, some of the old Democrats and former presidents who were Democrats before Carter, I suspect, I don't know who who we're talking about here, but in the old days, it is true. When Richard Nixon was running for president, Richard Nixon used to talk about law and order, and the Democratic response was law and order with justice, whatever either one of those meant. I never knew I was running it in 1972. I didn't think Richard Nixon knew what it meant, and I didn't think the opposition knew what it meant. Crime is not Democrat or Republican. Making the streets safe is not a Democratic or Republican issue. This is one of those issues I hope this passage of this bill will do, will be taken out of the gridlock category and moved into an emerging consensus. And the consensus is as follows, and I will cease when I finish this statement. The consensus is: a, we must take back the streets.
1: I I always love. They're so obsessed with consensus. They're just like we have to. We have to have the consensus. This
2: isn't about partisan
1: politics.
0: Wow. But like, but it's the same. It's the same. I mean, because everybody tried to act like in 2020, like Biden had uh, evolved on criminal justice, and then Jen Psaki stands up and goes, "Well, Republicans have been trying to cut funding for decades." All right. So when when was Biden making that point? When he was pushing the crime bill? When he was pushing fucking uh, mandatory sentencing? When he was pushing Bush and Reagan to the right on policing? Like that's when Biden was making those points, and it's the exact same point now that there's like a, a crime wave that they're willing to jump back on. You um, know, so it's it's fucking terrifying, honestly, because it's just gonna end up with more. It's gonna end up with more fucking heartbreak and more fucking death and more. Like incarcerated people, when we're we're kind of decarcerating people slowly, like it just it's going to be a huge step back.
2: Well, Biden did say nothing will fundamentally change. So,
0: <laughs> but um, yeah, anything any, expect. Any uh, any closing thoughts on Manchurian candidate? Um,
1: I I do I do have a closing thing here. So rewatching it before we went on air, you know. I don't think I have popped that hard for an ending in a long time. <laughs> I was like, when when he just like drills the those shots into his stepdad and his mom, I was like, yes, take him down. <laughs> like, no, it, it's 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 a very like cathartic ending because Lansbury plays the villain like to a hill. Like yeah. you just really grow to like hate her in this movie. I mean, just on a purely uh, uh, you know entertainment level, it's a very mm-hmm. Well done, film.
0: Yeah, and you know she she really she's a fucking like a nihilist before the like the big Lebowski like we believe in <laughs> <not the Lebowski laughs> version right, of fucking right. nihilists. Like, oh,
2: it's
0: and and you know because like the thing is that uh, the interesting thing I think is that you know her version of like her government wouldn't have ended up with communism like it would have ended up with totalitarian fascism like. Right, is it, she's doing anything she can to to take over, to take power? Like she believes in absolutely nothing besides power. Her her uh, her husband, she's just plying with fucking alcohol. He's brainwashed in in a different way. Like he's just like he's he's been fucking plying with alcohol to the point where his brain just like doesn't work, and he's like. You just have like, to love how like, like it's just uh, it's
1: clearly saying Joseph McCarthy is just a drunken buffoon. That is yeah, what the movie is yeah. saying.
2: Yeah,
0: but it's also not saying like oh well it's saying that, you know, the Soviet Union and China are kind of buffoons too, or seem that way. You know what I mean? Like, you know, they're being played Machiavellian style by Angela Lansbury. And throughout the movie, like, I think that, you know, I love the fucking uh, the Chinese uh, scientists and like all of those characters, but like, they're not looked at in, it's not even like they're, they're kind of buffoonish themselves. Like they're cracking jokes and like, you know, or, or like overly serious, like, you don't get the feeling that like these are evil people that are going to be able to wrest power away from Angela Lansbury because in this movie she's completely fucking evil. Like, there's nothing, there's no redeeming quality about her.
2: That's what makes her a badass in this movie.
0: Girl boss. Girl boss.
1: The other thing I was going to say too, uh, there's was, a lot there's of
0: one. There's one thing I wanted to bring up yeah. um, really fast. I, I also. I, I keep forgetting to bring this up, and I've wanted to the whole time. I, I love that the uh, the institute that they work for is the Pavlov Institute, right? the institute that conditions their brain. I don't know, I just thought that, that was a great, that was a great, that's uh, a
1: great touch for sure. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I mean, for me, it's um, I think Lansbury is very good in it, but I also, there's a lot of familiar faces in this film if you're like really deep into cinema, you know. I, when yeah. I was watching it. I was like, you know, I stopped at one point. There's a Russian agent in it named Dimitri. and I'm like, wait, that's that's Reggie Nowder. That's the guy from Salem's lot. That's the vampire from Salem's lot and uh Henry Silva as a uh, the sort of buffoonish uh what is it? he's the cook for Lawrence Harvey. And he's playing an Asian guy, but he's, you know, the whitest thing since white bread. I mean everyone's <laughs> pretty, is given their time to shine in this e- even if it's only yeah. for like a cameo. And there's a lot of really good and talented actors and actresses in it. Yeah. And I mean, Janet Lee is always very easy on my eyes. So
0: yeah. Well, I, I think that you know, one of the one of the cool things about like older Hollywood is that there was just like a, a stable of um of of character actors and yeah. that were very, very good, that spent decades, they'd kind of uh, enter in these contracts with different studios, yep. just be in like all of these different assorted movies and be in pretty much every other like every other movie, like. In noir movies, there's that one um, that guy Elijah. Um, he's not in this, but there's this, like, I, like if you watch like a bunch of noir movies from like the, the
1: Elijah Cook, movies, yeah, uh, if yeah. You
0: watch a bunch of like noir movies from the 40s and 50s. The same actors pop up over and over again. Yeah, and I feel like this is kind of the, like the dawn of New Hollywood. Like yeah. you're, you're watching, like it's the same kind of thing. Um, People
2: were getting jobs back then. They yeah. were getting jobs like crazy.
0: It's also funny yeah. that. It's, it's also interesting that somehow it's like the one movie that's not a, a Frank Sinatra vehicle that he was in. Like, <laughs> like
2: he's singing every, every scene.
0: Yeah. Like, no, like it seems like a lot of the movies that Frank Sinatra was in were, were obviously scripted for him. Yeah. And this, in this case, they like gave him the turn to be a hero, but like none of that dialogue is remotely written for him. Yeah, I mean, I you th- can hear him saying kid he, or whatever, but like that's, you know,
1: that's just part of other,
0: his new Jersey upbringing.
1: The other thing that works about the film for me is, uh, I mean if you go if you were to go into it blind, I think you, you wouldn't know who's on whose side. I mean, even the the Janet Lee character, her and her interactions yeah, with Yeah, I thought
0: she was gonna end up being like the American operator. The yeah, woman. I thought
1: she yeah, yeah, because like the way she interacts with uh Marco, the Frank Sinatra character, you're like, Oh, what's her motivations? Like what she just yeah. left her fiance? What what is this woman doing? Like, like
0: and, and it's a movie that's drenched in paranoia, obviously, which I love I love when movies are drenched in paranoia personally, mm-hmm. but like mm-hmm. it's funny when it's funny when like you really realize that somebody is just like a one a one dimensional character meant to like move the plot along like they, there's no other redeeming like or whatever like factor to their dialogue and you're like I don't trust that person and it's like no wait that's a plot device.
1: <laughs> in terms of uh, paranoid thrillers and just movies that are drenched in paranoia, where would you rank the Manchurian Candidate? Because for me, like. I think it's my bias that's
2: towards films question. made after 67.
1: But I, I sort of prefer stuff like um, John Carpenter's The Thing. I think that's an extremely paranoid movie. Like I said, The Parallax View is the, the top one for me. Maybe uh, Coppola's The Conversation. But I, I think the man Candidate* Kennedy has that. But I'm put off by how much it's drenched in this sort of, uh, oh, the commies are coming paranoia.
2: Before I give my yeah. rating, uh, also include David Cronenberg's The Fly. Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. That movie I, – I mean I saw that movie like three years ago, and I kid you not, guys. I had nightmares for like <laughs> – I was sleeping with the nightlight on, with the, with the light on for months yeah. because I would see that movie, and I'm just like, oh, God. Well, the, the ultimate – It ul- would freak me out. The ultimate I,
1: paranoid Cronenberg for me is Videodrome. And it, you know what? That is Cold War-ish in its own way, but – you know, I I, I don't know. I, I think this is a paranoid movie, but it's paranoid in this way where I'm like, oh God, it, it's like, it's not exactly like one of those, you know, uh, John Wayne movies, like mm-hmm. Big Jim McLean, where it's like, oh, the commies are infiltrating. It's sort of kind of more liberal than that. And that it's saying, oh, really the commies aren't the, the real threat. It's this, you know, uh, nation fascist woman in Angela Lansbury. But I, I still feel like, I'm put off by some of the Cold War politics and whatnot.
0: It kind of feels like it's at a crossroads for me. Yeah, um, yeah. I think that I think there's a I think there's a perfect kind of synthesis where we're talking about all these movies that are like anti-government, like oh, the real like be paranoid about your own government, and then like on one side, and then on the other one, it's like be paranoid about the Russians. This somehow perfectly meets yep. in that middle ground where it's like both your government and the Russians and the Chinese. And, you know, some lady that's on a train and like, like, who do you know? Like, how do you know who to trust? And even the people that have good motivations, like they're fucking brainwashed. So it's like, how do you know? How do you know who to trust whatsoever? And I really I like the Raymond Shaw character a lot um, because he's just not it's not like it's not like you're rooting for him in the sense of like you're rooting for him to like overcome his mother and his stepfather. But he's not like a likable character. You're not like, oh, this is like a this is like a nice guy. Like I feel like this guy is charismatic, and I'm like, and somehow like he's just like this 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 thing that's been like transformed by having this relationship with his mother, like almost in like a Norman Bates kind of way. Like,
1: yeah, <laughs> I mean the Oedipal complex thing is very much yeah like upfront in this movie. I'm not sure it's even subtext.
0: Yeah, I don't know. It, it's I I think that. But I also think that throughout history there's been a lot of these stories of like the powerful I mean besides like Oedipus like like the 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 evil like totalitarian mother and then just like the you know the um almost like I guess the like literally literally in the book actually but like the impotent like father person like by okay. the side literally in the book he is impotent like uh in the in the Manchurian Candidate book he can't have sex with her because she's like so dominated him that is like dick no longer works so it's like this. <laughs> Literally, that's a detail that they go into at one point in the Manchurian Candidate like novel.
1: And- what do you guys think um, about the film in terms of? Do you got are you are you guys fans of uh, uh, Joan Frankenheimer more generally? Because I think he's one of the more people don't talk about him. as like one of these Hollywood directors on the same level as like a Spielberg, but right. I mean he has some real gems. I mean. Um, I mean, I, I won't say that this is a gem, but he did Island of Dr. Moreau, which was terrible, but, uh, he's done a lot of, you know, really great movies and I'm trying to think of them off the top of my head, but, Oh, he did Birdman of Alcatraz. And, uh,
2: yeah, yeah. I would, I would have to kind of dig deep into his catalog to, um, just check out a bunch of his movies to see which ones I would, I would like. And ones that would be like, "Eh, that was okay.
0: One that Um, I haven't watched that I want to watch, um, and do a stream on it would be interesting at some point to do the george wallace uh oh
2: yeah Um, taxi driver is that one it
0: no i'm talking about uh john Frankenheimer has a george like george wallace like that's his uh that's the name of it it's based on the southern governor that was like the racist racist right 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 well
2: where i was going was um uh you know with the whole arthur bremer thing leading uh influenced by john hinkley had why i was influenced by robert de niro's taxi driver so that's where i was going. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah that that was about, uh,
0: frankenheimer has a movie that's just called or like a tv a tv like two part movie that's just called george wallace and i'd be very interested mm. to watch that he he yeah. also
1: did a he did a tv movie called the path to war which is uh it's like an anti-iraq war film so i mean he's done some interesting things french connection 2 which i i mean it's not the french connection but it's good in its own right as a standalone Um, also he did an Israeli propaganda film called Black Sunday, which is really weird because he said, yeah, I I tweaked a few things because I didn't want it to be purely an Israeli propaganda film. I wanted the Arabs to not look as bad,
2: but he's he's a very
1: odd director.
2: Yeah, he (laughs) is. He like, um, he filmed, um, Bobby Kennedy when he was running for president in 68, when he was on the road, he would like film, um. Like different shots of him, like greeting people, shaking hands. You can find this stuff. Um, he, I think I was actually looking him up uh before uh JG came on during the break, and uh, I think he died in, in 2007 because yeah, he's not alive anymore, obviously. This 2002. 2002. Okay, I saw yeah. my so, right,
0: so right, yeah. Um, I, 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 there's a couple movies in here that I want to. Rewatch like Birdman of Alcatraz. Sp- Speaking
1: point. of of which, he sort of did a film that may be of interest to leftists just because of the content. It's a uh, 1991's Year of the Gun with uh, oh. the beautiful Sharon Stone. I'm a huge Sharon Stone fan, uh, and I'm I'm proud to admit that I don't care. But <laughs> yeah, no uh,
0: problem with that. I, I he, can't I can't see her without thinking about Casino. Oh, know. it's
1: Casino yeah. is great, especially yeah. the TV edited version where it's like they have to censor <laughs> every other work.
0: That's the first uh that's the first movie I did with Ben. Like the mm-hmm. first movie stream I did with Ben on on GTA um uh, like I don't think I think back in uh December because um he had done Goodfellas with my scene like they had talked about it. So mm-hmm. we were like we can't start with that. Like our, our movie stream started as like a Scorsese watch through and then it just kind of transformed into it kind like kind of evolved. Of those, so, yeah, this multi-headed the, hydra.
1: <laughs> the reason I mention uh the Sheeran Stone movie that he did, Year of the Gun, it deals with the um the Kidnapping and Assassination of Otto Morrow. You know, it, it deals with the Red Brigades and all that stuff. So he's done a lot of um, oddly political films. So, mm-hmm.
2: so um, JG, this is a sort of thing that I do since you're a big film book. Uh, I'm curious to know, what's your take on Kevin Smith? Um, uh, he, of course, has got the smile. He knows where I'm going.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I'm not. I, I, I'm honestly not the biggest Kevin Smith fan. I never got into Clerks. I get why it appeals to people. I but really, I really, never mind. I
0: really, I think both of us really, really love Clerks. Mm-hmm. It, just,
1: it reminds mm-hmm.
0: me, of, it reminds me of the town that I fucking grew up in, and it like, I mean, like, or the town that I live in, like New Balt, kind of has a lot of fucking like weird fucking Jay and Silent Bob type people. That, <laughs> that hang out I know, all right? There's nothing to fucking. So, do. so that like, movie really, I don't know. I just, I, I, mean, I like, love it to death. Um, I
1: liked what he did with um, the horror movies he's done lately, oh, like Tusk um, and uh, Tusk
2: and uh, Red State. And uh, Red State is really good. Red yeah, State I actually surprised it. me. Um, he did uh, Yoga Hosers, which is a sequel to Tusk.
1: I, yeah, I like. You know, it's funny. Everyone I know hates Yoga Hosers, but I, I enjoyed I, Yoga. I liked. I, liked yeah, I thought it was like an I old. Did. It reminded me of like those old full moon studios type, you know, low budget trash movies like the Puppet Master series. <laughs> right, like and I was those like, it's great.
2: indie movies. Red, like, Red um, State,
1: not not to interrupt you, but Red no, State okay. surprised me because I, I thought it was going to be because I, I had a friend who was like real pure mainstream Democrat, uh, mm-hmm. that loved Kevin Smith and he was like all pumped for uh Red State, and I was like, oh, God, is this going to be, like, a really preachy film? And I guess it is in some ways, but he also, it's interesting, I mean, it plays a lot off of stuff like Waco, mm-hmm. and it doesn't necessarily take the view that the federal government has the right approach to those things. Mm-hmm. It's sort of critical of the federal government in that way, and I actually like that he took that sort of viewpoint, um, because it wasn't it wasn't as black and white of a movie as I thought it was going to be.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, back to Yoga Horsers. Um, yeah, I don't understand why people hate that movie. I it's you know, I watched it several times on YouTube for free, and I, I gotta say, I love it. Um, it's probably one of my, my favorite films of his outside of, of um, the Views universe, uh, next to Jersey Girl.
0: Um, yeah, I like I, I think I think Tusk is fucking great. No, yeah, Tusk is, yeah. yeah, it is, but I kind of maybe, maybe a out. <laughs> Like, it, it gave me, like, this feeling of just, like, persistent nausea. And that's how I know that it was, like, a good, like, a good, I don't know, like, gross out fucking, like, like that genre of horror. Well, I, I I like that he's,
1: like, he's, like, Tarantino in a lot of ways. Because he'll yeah. bring back these actors that everyone forgot about. It's, like, Michael Parks is really good in Tusk. And he's also really good in Red State. I mean, you really hate him in Red State. He's such a bigoted, <laughs> you know, he's basically David Koresh in that movie, right? But, yeah, you know... It, that's the thing I like about Kevin Smith. he will sort of bring in these actors that I grew up on character actors that I would, you know, I would go to my video store. It was a video store that specialized in like genre films that were really obscure and whatnot. So those are the like kind of actors I like seeing. And he's sort of like, he's a career revival guy. He, he tries yeah. to, you know, give an older guy uh, or older actors and actresses, uh, you know, a something chance. to do. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, it's the same, it's the same genre of, uh, or that same, I guess style of as Tarantino of like a like a filmmaker filmmakers who clearly have watched way too much cinema yeah like like filmmakers who like pop culture references is their uh like is a big part of their aesthetic so it's like you know I mean with with Kevin Smith it's obviously more comic books a lot of times but they're also like action films older films so it's like that, that's interesting. I, I it, get, it gets
1: really weird when you reach that level of cinephilia where yeah. you're like, you're watching like, like I will watch John Carpenter movies sometimes because I'm a huge John Carpenter buff. And I'll be like, oh, he's referencing this old Howard Hawks movie. And I would just think to myself, damn, I am such a nerd. How do I know that? <laughs> but uh, the other that's- thing about Kevin Smith I was going to say is, uh, I don't know, I find some of his takes like kind of off base, but. You know, uh, he makes good films. It's just not necessarily always my style of film.
2: Right. Like, I think like, his
1: take on Tim Burton's Batman sucked, though. I, <laughs> I don't know if you guys remember that, where he was yeah, like... Yeah, yeah. Uh,
2: I, I don't well, know. And, uh, um, there's an unreleased... Sorry to interrupt you, JG, but um, there's an unreleased script for Super... There was going to be a Superman movie that Kevin Smith had written that Tim Burton was going to direct, and it oh, never really? got made. And, yeah, there's a, um, uh, a documentary... Uh, called The Death of Superman Lives, What Happened, um, basically chronicling the early parts of the movie and how it all fell apart. I've seen it like several times. It's really good.
1: That was like one the one they were going to do with Nicolas Cage, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen it. Yeah, I've seen the documentary. Um, it is really good. I, I it, forget what, what he said about the Tim Burton Batman. I think Tim Burton said something about Planet of the Apes, and how <laughs> he would never read comic books, Yeah, uh, especially ones it, written by Kevin Smith. And then I think yeah, Kevin Smith wrote, said, "Well, that explains Batman. You've never yeah. read comics." I'm like, "No, nah, you then don't like, touch Tim Burton's Batman."
2: <laughs> well, yeah, I'm actually well, a big Tim Burton fan myself as yeah. well, so I respect both those guys.
0: I it's think just kind of, um, I can't ahead, find an article on it, but I think uh, Kevin Smith at one point was going to revive um, Preacher before uh, before the AMC show. Yeah, It was like slated to like re- help write and direct that. You and, should
2: actually, real quickly, Force. You should you, uh, YouTube uh, Kevin Smith and Tim Burton. Because it's a funny clip that he does. He, he speaks at universities, and he's like, um, he's talking to uh, an executive on on, uh, on the phone, and he's like, "I'm contemplating legal action." I, he's like joking around, and he's like going, hee you know. <laughs> and then, like the next day, the next day, um, he gets a, a, a response from Tim Burton's publicist, which I kid you not, this is his name, Bumble Ward there's somebody on this planet named fucking bumble ward and it's like the gloves are off and i will never read a comic book by kevin here it is
7: enjoy batman just since the same people were did i enjoy batman matched. yeah i enjoyed batman i mean with all its flaws and shit yeah absolutely when the movie came out like i was i had no idea i ever wanted to be in film i was just a guy that watched movies and shit and that summer was huge you couldn't turn around without seeing the bat signal somewhere people were cutting into their fucking heads <laughs> It was just like it was a summer of Batman. If you were a comic book fan, it was pretty hot, and I was real deep into it at that point. I had just gotten back into comics, so suddenly Batman was everywhere. So I was a big fan. But Tim Burton, I, I guess, like you know, ever since the Superman incident, people will bring me copies of the script. Like they buy at comic book conventions or buy off the internet, and they hand it to me and like, "Would you autograph?" I say, "All right," and I always like, "Fuck Tim Burton," because <laughs> I figure he'll never see it but I guess Tim Burton finally saw one. (laughs) Because during the summer, uh, right before Jay and Bob came out and after Planet of the Apes Apes came out, there was a piece that ran in the New York Post on page six in which Tim Burton chewed me a new asshole. At the end of Planet of the Apes movie, I hope I'm not spoiling it for anybody, like Marky Mark goes back to fucking present day. (laughs) It is fucking Marky Mark. I don't care what he calls himself now. It's just like feel it, feel
0: it, you know. It's funny that he he speaks in the same way that he writes monologues, like when uh, when Ben Affleck gave gave those uh, monologues in fucking Chasing Amy, pretty much like yeah, Yeah. he has the same cadence that Kevin Smith has normally.
1: I I, he's very interesting in that he um. He sort of takes his show on the road and whatnot. I know Crispin Glover does that too. And he's very fan interactive. And, you know, I, I think he was joking uh, about his little feud with Tim Burton, but it, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know, he, he's good at like drumming up attention by, you know, making woody remarks and whatnot. And I, I think he should be respected for that. Yeah. I mean, he's very, he's very, he's, I hate to say respect the hustle, but he does have a pretty good hustle. He does not that i'm a fan of hustle culture
0: but. <laughs> <laughs> well he got a uh, he got inspired by um slacker that was yeah his, yeah so uh so when he watched dude like, we gotta
2: watch that movie
0: yeah a couple years before um i was just when i was in austin like a couple weeks ago I, I went there for a vacation and they had the the dude from slacker as like the on like a, a mural that was the first thing i saw but um like so yeah so he got inspired by that and like a. Uh, indie cinema place that he went to, and that's kind of his original concept. Like,
2: um he was um, inspired by Spike Lee, How Hartley, Jim Jarmish, and Richard Linklater.
0: Yeah, but like, I, his, his exact idea, was. idea. Was I guess, his exact idea for Clerks was based on Slacker after seeing mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Spe- um,
1: speaking of Linklater, at some point, we're going to have to do a show on uh, a scanner darkly. That is a, a really weird paranoia. I show. did
0: want to yeah. uh, I did one with uh, Ben and uh, Jeremy Johnson. I mean, I'd be down to watch it again. But like a couple months ago, there's a stream that we did with uh, Jeremy Johnson, Mm -hmm. um, who like I don't know. I guess he he like he's really into Philip K. Dick or whatever. And like we so we watched that and uh, and like talked about it for like two and a half hours, and it was like a good it was a good stream. But I had to keep holding back from like making like I don't know. I was like, all right, don't make any like don't make any fucking like (laughs) drug jokes or whatever like. (laughs) and then i just I like ended up slipping up and like like making like you, like you made a joke about like about like eating an edible i was like talking about an edible or something and then i was like ah oh, fuck <laughs> um
2: i guess the top i mean linklater movie for me next to the Bef- to the before trilogy which is really good i have to say i mean i li- i like boyhood hands down one of my favorite movies of his i i bought it like uh, like 2 years ago and I, I watched it in one sitting. I was just like, "Damn, this is a real good movie." And I hadn't really been like familiar with Linklater until I I got further into Kevin Smith. Um, but yeah, boy, we have to do Boyhood, even if you've already seen it more than once. Like oh, I, uh, that's I, I, still good. I
0: still I still love fucking Days and Confused. Like I yeah I, hell yeah. I'll never not like that movie. It's like
2: all right, all right, all right.
0: Yeah, it's it's <laughs> but it's literally like. kind of gives you like a feeling he like gives you kind Mm -hmm. of like a feeling for like like a nostalgic feeling for like an hour and a half and it's like i don't know like it's almost like the the plot of it almost doesn't matter because there's just so much going on at the same time (laughs) that's a movie that has fucking so many like actors that ended up being big too and then yeah definitely
2: there's um i should have brought it out but there's uh, i have a book in my personal library about the making of dazed and confused um also yeah yeah I forget the author's name Uh, uh, it's like a interview book and it came out like maybe a year ago during the pandemic
0: you have to wonder kind of if uh, like if the reason that Kevin Smith reached out to fucking Ben Affleck for so many of those movies um, was was dazed and confused yeah Uh, as, like, the world's biggest fucking Richard Linklater fan, I feel like. Do you you
1: guys think we have equivalents uh, to those kind of filmmakers today? Like, we've talked about Kevin Smith, and we've talked about David Cronenberg and Frankenheimer. Well, I mean, I I think there's a few guys that really impress me. Ty West, I'm a big fan of, but I don't think we have the same type of filmmakers anymore.
2: I think they get no, I don't up. think so either. It's, you know, it's really hard to pin. That's a good question. But it's really hard to pinpoint because um, everything is just through a studio now. It's not really do I mean, there still is, you know, do it yourself uh, movie makers like Kevin Smith. But um, it's all corporated now. So...
0: Yeah, they get, they get nice. snatched up by streaming services. Yeah, yeah, and they write, um, like, and they write like TV shows rather than movies. And they kind yeah, of yeah. I mean, the- I
1: mean that that's the thing that like I'm not even necessarily saying that they have to be like indie filmmakers, but like filmmakers with like maybe their own sense of vision, or they they're they're sort of thinking about what do I want to convey in this film because I don't I don't know I I, I feel like a lot of Hollywood films Elaine Joan writes, Jones Jones that uh, Jackman writes about this a lot. A lot of them feel like kind of empty, or you know, yeah. not. I don't know. Maybe I'm just too nostalgic for older movies. So.
0: <laughs> I also well, feel like there was a, there's like a kind of a, a counter reaction to the fact that like it hit that moment with fucking like mumblecore, where right. it, like, indie movies were just having such a big moment, and like there were just so many like, weird ones. And then all of a sudden, it feels like people kind of backed Ooh. away from it because like how many of those movies can we really watch? And yeah, the, uh, the, uh, the other thing uh, is uh, I, the moment I, of like extreme consolidation uh with like streaming services right i mean but the
2: changing dynamics obviously in technology with with streaming services have um have rendered some so-called indie filmmakers irrelevant as opposed to ones you know in 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 the 80s and 90s since we're always like pinpointing that decade as like like of course like like opening my mic um like in the in the in the fifties and like in in the seventies with the new Hollywood, and um, you know, you in the eighties you had like the artsy kind of uh, films, and in, in the nineties, of course, the indie uh, cred, and in the two thousands, it's kind of when it started getting a little corporated. Uh, corporated.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think now you have like I- you know the paralyzing like, I think directors are fucking scared to do anything that isn't woke like. Yeah. So I think we're at a very weird moment right now, and I think at some point it's all going to bounce back.
1: Um, well, now, now what, what, what gets me now is, like, there's a Dallas-based company called Cinestate, which mm-hmm. they, they own, like, publications uh, like Fangoria, and they also make their own movies, but they're trying to do, like, the right-wing equivalent yeah. of, like, woke cinema, so it's, like, anti-woke Yeah, and, and
0: that ruins creativity, because at that point yeah. they're just being, because, like, if you look at truly subversive anti-PC like uh cinema or comic books or anything like Garth Ennis stuff, like there's no, like, like it's satire and you're not, you don't think he's necessarily reacting to like, I mean, obviously like he's not reacting to like the me too movement. You know what I mean? He's not like, Oh, yeah. like let's, let's, Oh, people are so woke nowadays. Like it's just satirical fucking grotesque madness. And none of these fucking right. people are are capable of thinking that like that way.
1: What's, know? what's, What's funny to me, too, not not to interrupt, was um, I feel like everyone talks like you hear Republicans talk about, oh, Hollywood, they're so left wing and whatnot. And I'm (laughs) like, I don't know. Lexi Alexander, who I mean, I've seen people criticize her as too woke, but she's pretty, you know, far to the left compared to most Hollywood people uh, these days. She did the Punisher War Zone. She's a Palestinian activist and all this Mm -hmm. other stuff, but she can't get a film made in Hollywood. (laughs) <laughs> like, yeah. and I, I'm pretty sure it may have to do with like her politics being sort of uh, more left of more to the left of the spectrum than what is acceptable in Hollywood. Hollywood I think also Hollywood's definitely. kind of conservative in some ways. Yeah. I mean, the
0: Palestinian activist part of it probably. Yeah. you should next.
1: get her on the show at some point.
0: <laughs> I, I, I want this, I want this show to, to, to blow up. Like I, I want to yeah. be able to like, I feel like, I feel like very slowly we're going to get to that point, but like, I don't know. Like I'm, I need to get better at like reaching out to to like guests that are big and you know what i mean like being like let's like why not like let's let's reach for the stars here
2: yeah and i'll help you yeah, know i will yeah <laughs> like um what was i gonna say um shoot it just it's my brain
0: we should probably this because we did an hour first and now this is going to be another three hour uh Three I'm episode. sorry
1: if I ranted too much. When no, no, no this, not was, not. this was fun. I feel like
0: I can do this awesome. for three hours. So, oh, so,
1: since we talked about Reagan, if anyone yeah. is still listening at this point so far into the show, read the book Dark Victory. That is the best book on Reagan. Dan Moldea's Dark Victory because it details how he was like all mobbed up uh, and how he was sort of a creation of Hollywood and the mob. But it's fascinating book. So...
0: That's not that's not surprising. All right. Um yeah. quickly, everybody, so each each person, I guess, uh, what did you think of Manchurian Candidate, just on a good and or bad kind of scale?
2: I guess I'll go first. Um since I'm the young one. Uh, <laughs> I, I say probably about like an eight and a half out of ten.
1: I don't do
0: well, I'm not. I'm not saying you have to rate it. I'm just saying. Okay. Like, okay. To I was guys. gonna say I don't. Just, I
1: don't do like the five like stars. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm yeah, not I it. think it's an extremely well crafted film. I think John Frankenheimer is one of the more underrated 20th century d- directors of the Hollywood mold. And I think, you know, if you haven't seen it, there's a reason it's so highly regarded. I may not connect to it as much, with regards to some of the Cold War politics, but it's an expertly made film with an astounding cast, including the supporting actors. And I, I think, you know, but I, for me, the big thing about the film is at about the hour mark, I think you start to feel this shift where it's like, oh, wait, maybe this is being more critical of McCarthyism than I realized. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that twist halfway in really brought me into the film more than the first hour. And I was like, I started to get really into it after the hour mark.
0: And I think it's a really great film. You start to realize at that point, I think that it's not like a black and white, like the moral is not going to be black and white. Like it's going to be far more twisted. And like, I I, I don't know. Like I didn't, I couldn't guess who the fucking, who his American operator was going to be like the first time I saw it. Like I I thought like it was, maybe they were just going to throw in like another character or something like finding out that it was the mom. And it wasn't that the mom was like, you know, twisting him. It was that literally the mom was twisting him. Like, wiped his brain was kind of like, a. a <laughs> you a, have
1: to love the way they reveal it too. Right. Like, like he's just on the phone. He's like, it's the American operator, Frank Sinatra and Frank Sinatra. It's <laughs> like, I wonder who it is. And he's just like, okay, mother. It's like Frank Sinatra.
0: Oh, yeah. His face goes- <laughs> I don't know. I, I res- I respect the fuck out of the fact that it wasn't just a Sinatra vehicle. Like, I, you know what I yeah. mean? Like I respect that they like used him as an actual, like he's, he's a, as he's an actual a part actor. of a, yeah, and they allowed him to get overshadowed by Angela Lansbury. Like they allowed his character to kind of just fade into the background. Like everybody yes, likes Frank Sinatra. Like I'm I mean on like a charisma level. But then like you know like I, I feel like he's the character that most and the character probably that is in it less than Frank Sinatra is Angela Lansbury, mm-hmm. and she just, just like decimates uh, decimates everybody else.
1: Since I didn't since we didn't talk about it um, before I came on, and I don't think we mentioned it really here. What did you guys think of Lawrence Harvey as the, you know, tormented main character?
0: I mean, so I, I think that I, his accent kind of took me out of it at times, but I think he's he's kind of like, like because I was reading, I was listening to the audiobook of it, and he's like, just this awkward, he's like this awkward, unlikable cloying figure. And as far as that goes, I think he did a great job of that. Um, I, I think that I don't know. I I can't see anybody else really doing. And then kind of the fact that he had that accent made it even more, like made it even more stark that like everyone else is kind of just talking normally. And he's like, well, I don't, but he has that like fucking weird voice. Like, especially when he gets like the brainwashing thing, like it almost sounds like he's part of like a machine or something. Like Mm -hmm. he's like, he's like, yes. Like
2: (laughs) he sounds a little like blurch from the end. Yeah.
1: I I asked because, uh, (laughs) people should look up his filmography. He's very interesting. He's sort of like a John Cassavetes character because he would do acting. And then he was also a director. So mm-hmm. very interesting guy on his own, but I thought he was good in it too. And I, yeah. I thought it was a great film overall.
0: All right. Well, All right. Uh, we're going to cut it here. Um, this right. is going to be going up on Tuesday. Um,
2: I Should not plug it? anything? Gonna
0: have it. Oh, I need to plug that we have a Patreon now. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that um, this is going to go up on Tuesday. I think I'm going to put it up a little bit earlier for uh, for if, if people join the Patreon. I don't know if anyone has yet because I just made it today. But um, so, yeah. So uh, if you want to become a patron, it's um, patreon.com slash movie night extra. And uh, yeah, I don't know. We, no, haven't we, don't. Gotten, we haven't gotten any 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 patrons yet, but that's okay. We're
2: just starting, so we got yeah. time.
0: Um, I'm really, I'm really hoping to um at least make enough uh, money on Patreon that we can start kind of using it as a um that we can start using it as a as a movie fund at the very least. Like, yeah, so we wouldn't have to get, pay out of our own pockets. Yeah, it's gonna get expensive. So if you like this, uh, if you like this show, and if you if you want us to keep watching movies and not go broke, um, become a <laughs> patron.
2: Yeah, definitely.
0: <laughs> and let me consume content.
2: <laughs> give give whatever you can.
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, there's a you five dollars, one dollars,
2: ten dollars. Yeah, no, at ready. some
0: at some point, um, I'm going to be doing like short form video essays. I think if people, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I mean, if I can kind of make somewhat of a living on on doing some of this stuff, so I think that there'll be a lot of content for people, and I think that at some points we'll also do um at some points we'll probably also do bonus episodes and stuff. So you know, we're just getting started, and, and hopefully we get enough seed money to continue. But, all right, I'm going to leave it at that. Um, Thank you for for, for coming on.
2: JG, uh, thank you so much. Nice to meet you, man.
1: Appreciate it, and hope everyone can uh, help you out on Patreon. And if they can help me out on Patreon, or if they can listen to Parallax Views, please Uh, do so.